Just a few verses. Romans 2, verse 6 is where we'll begin. Go through 11. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I forgot to offer a brief introduction to uh, our little theologians. So little theologians, let me open uh, this sermon with a request to you. Would you please draw something dangerous, not a dangerous person, but something that is uh, dangerous. This passage tells us that God is dangerous. Make no mistake about it. And so I'd like for you to draw for me a picture of something dangerous. You see, this morning we have a very doctrinal passage about the character of God. Uh, but it's not his love or wisdom or omnipresence that we're talking about this morning. It's his judgment. In the very center of our passage, in verse 8, we see uh, the word wrath. And it's not the first time that we have seen that word. The word was introduced to us in a very important verse in Romans. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And there we saw the word wrath as a description of God's indignation at human sin. Uh, we uh, saw the word again last week in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Wrath is there as well. And added to this here in verse 8, we are introduced to a word found actually only here in Romans, and that word is not wrath, but the word fury. And this word is really about God's emotional response to sin. If we can say, if it's appropriate to say that God has emotions, this word literally means enragement. He is enraged at the sinfulness of human beings. And so this morning we're looking at a doctrine that tells us that God is absolutely dangerous. I want to begin, though, with an illustration that sounds on the surface to not be dangerous but frivolous, but here we go nonetheless. In 1994 at the uh, Anchorage Zoo, I'm from Anchorage, uh, just a quarter mile uh, from where my family used to live, uh, there was an international incident at this zoo. Uh, an Australian tourist was visiting the zoo uh, and hoping to get a good picture of one of two polar bears at the Anchorage Zoo. Now, they wanted a really good photo of Binky. Doesn't that sound funny? Binky the polar bear. And so, uh, in order to uh, get this better picture, and I'm not going to mention the name of the tourist, the tourist uh, survived, uh, but in order to get a better picture, uh, she climbed over a uh, wooden uh, guardrail uh, to get just a little bit closer to Binky's cage. And Binky, uh, rather than uh, posing placidly and majestically just like 
an Alaskan postcard. Uh, Binky actually uh, poked her frame through uh, the metal cage and grabbed the tourist and began the process of dragging the tourist into Binky's own domain. And this Australian photographer uh, barely made it out alive. It actually was captured. Uh, people uh, took pictures of what was happening. Uh, she was uh, pulled from Binky's mouth. Uh, her leg was broken. Various parts of her body uh, were torn. And I don't mind saying that Alaskans, by and large, just love this story. It just falls well into that uh, demeanor of what it means to be an Alaskan. And here was an opportunity for Alaskans to say, we're actually more dangerous than Australia. Not even an Australian can take Alaska. There are t-shirts that said, send us another tourist, this one got away. <laughs> it's an Alaskan thing. Binky, despite his name, was dangerous. And he grabbed her and began to pull her into his cage. And I know that that's a silly illustration, but I want us this morning to begin to think about the aspect of God that's utterly terrifying. Paul wants us to know that God is a ferocious, fearful, powerful presence. Uh, this aspect of God is one in which we need to be thankful for, uh, as it were, the polar bear cage. And we should probably uh, notice, if God is this powerful, the various guardrails that indicate that uh, here before you is a presence of danger. And Paul wants us to know God is dangerous. And what's even uh, worse about this passage, worse as it were, is that this danger is so clearly defined that even a kindergartner could understand it. Uh, there's a scene in one of uh, the Sherlock Holmes short stories uh, in which uh, Sherlock uh, senses that there's an ominous danger around the corner and someone asks him, uh, well, what is it that you sense? And he says, it ceases to be a danger if we could define it. And here, uh, Paul uses uh, the language as best he can to define the danger of God. And Paul gives us that danger just enough to terrify us, just enough so that a child can understand it and be terrified. Our God is a God who judges. And that's what Paul's saying. And God's judgment is not arbitrary. And God's judgment is not with partiality. There's no escaping him. Our God is a God who judge. And so, uh, and so what we begin to see in this passage is a picture of our need before God. Paul has said in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, if we make the mistake and think that God is, well, relatively safe, already contained, proportionally approachable, well, we might not recognize the great power of the gospel. The gospel need not be very powerful is God is less, if God is less like a polar bear and more like a flamingo. The gospel doesn't need to be powerful if he's not threatening. But indeed, Paul knows that the gospel needs to be powerful. 
In fact, the gospel needs to be so powerful that the gospel uh, can not only reveal the righteousness of God, but that same gospel needs to be able to protect us from that righteousness, to protect us from the judgment of God. And so what we're looking at this morning is the truth that there is a protective element in the gospel, a gospel in which we see God's judgment and yet are not condemned by it. So there's something about a God that we need to know, and that's where I'd like to begin. Look at verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. And then look at verse 11. God shows no partiality. And I want to argue that each of these verses really belong together to say uh, one thing about God, or or maybe uh, two sides of the same coin. These verses belong together. Let me tell you what I mean. I want to say that I'm asking you to set aside a couple of your big questions about this passage temporarily. When you first read this passage, maybe in preparation for this morning, one question that came to mind, I'm sure, was something along these lines. Who in the world is Paul addressing in this passage? That is... Is Paul imagining his audience uh, to be uh, Jews, Jews subject to uh, God's judgment? Or is he imagining pagans subject to God's judgment? Or is he imagining uh, humanity before the incarnation of Christ? Or maybe this is a judgment for Christians. Who's the audience of the passage? But let's wait on that question. There's another question I'm sure came to mind to you. And that question doesn't come until verse 10, where Paul seems to assume that there is a possibility of doing good before God, of receiving peace from God as a payment of sorts. And this question becomes then, uh, how is peace before God uh, possible? Is it something that I get from working, from seeking? So I think that's another question that comes from this passage. But uh, these two questions, who's the passage addressed to, and how is it that one can please God. Well, those two questions are my second and third point of the sermon. But first, let's consider what Paul is saying in verses 6 and 11, because I think it's here that we get a very clear and precious doctrine about who God is. You see, verse 6 tells us that God will repay a person. He'll make a fitting payment to someone. It's a a financial uh, word, that word render. It's similar to making a payment of some sort. Uh, uh, The word shows up uh, 18 times in Matthew's gospel alone. That's more than anywhere else in the Bible. Just a quick survey of this word for render that shows up in verse uh, 6. In most cases, it actually refers to something that's very easy to understand, and that's uh, uh, paying back or making a payment uh, on a... uh, Uh, with regards to a horizontal relationship. So, for instance, Matthew uh, 22, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay to Caesar uh, what needs to be paid to Caesar. Or in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18, uh, there's a person who is in debt because he cannot pay his master. And so he promises to pay everything. And ultimately, he is uh, seized uh, by his creditor who says, pay me what you owe. And so uh, this word really functions a lot in Matthew's gospel just as a horizontal relationship. It's a payment of some sort. But it also functions in Matthew's gospel in a 
vertical relationship. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to pay to God what we have sworn to him, Matthew 5, 33, that we are to give an offering to God and to give that offering in secret. And then God is going to uh, see that offering and then he is going to, as it were, uh, pay us back uh, in secret, Matthew 6. We are to uh, give an account to God for every careless word. That's Matthew 12. But that word for account is we are to uh, give payment to God for every careless word. And uh, finally, in Matthew 16, God will repay each person according to what he's done. And so what we find in Matthew's gospel, that this word, this word for repayment, it happens horizontally in the Bible, but it also happens vertically. Now, in our passage... Uh, in many ways, we can be thankful for this. Verse 6 is in the future tense. And so what our passage is saying is it's saying that uh, God is going to one day make a payment according to a person's works or deeds. In that regard, verse 6 is relatively a simple sentence in the Greek. One day, God is going to pay each person a payment that somehow fits their deeds. One scholar looks at verse 6 and says, this is almost exactly like the Greek version of Proverbs 24, 12. God will not repay man according to, uh, or God will repay man according to his work. So what's Paul mean here? Well, I think the, the passage gets more dangerous than that. But jump down to verse 11. There's one more qualifying feature of the character of God. Paul says that God shows no partiality. Now, this is a very important doctrine to Paul, just as it was to Moses. The passage that we looked at earlier this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 10 uh, echoes this very same sentiment that, that the God who judges is a God who shows no partiality. That Paul is going to say in Ephesians 6 that there's no partiality with the Lord. And what we see here is that verses uh, 6 and 11 in our passage, the very first and the very last, they're actually similar to Colossians 3.25 where Paul says that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. There is no partiality. Write that in your margin, Colossians 3.25. And so if the general feel of verse 6 is familiar because it involves uh, economics, as it were, uh, verse 6 uh, it feels like the language of the marketplace. Uh, verse 11 feels like the language of a, of a legal system, of a, of a courtroom. No partiality. Now, listen, this is a pretty good exercise in doctrine, is it not? Here we're learning about God. What is God's character? You see, systematic theology is the study of the Bible in which verses are, are classified according to various headings. Uh, what does the Bible say about the doctrine of Scripture? And then the systematic theologian lists those passages that tell us about the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of last things. And Paul, right here, right here is doing systematic theology. He's giving us a biblical doctrine of God. In fact, we don't have to work very hard at all to take verse 6 and verse 11 and to put them together and find this echoed throughout the Old Testament. The lists of texts that say the very same thing are all over the Old Testament. But what's notable here is that Paul is being so clear. 
He's using such common notions, pulling from the world of economics, pulling from the world of the courtroom, so that we would see that God will repay according to what is done on earth, and he will repay with no partiality at all. Now, I'll admit that it may be socially inappropriate to broach this uh, topic at a dinner party about the judgment of God. So often we are very happy to talk about God's knowledge, his love, his mercy, his wisdom. But Paul doesn't want to miss that God is a God who judges. This is a real doctrine because God is real. And this doctrine needs to be reckoned with because God must be reckoned with. And this is why we need the power of the gospel. And with that as a background, that Paul is being viscerally clear to us that God is a God who judges, now I want to move to our two questions. The first being generically this, who in the world is Paul addressing with these words? And to answer this question, we really need only to consider what Paul emphasizes himself in this passage and where that emphasis strikes other parts of Romans. I've hinted at this already, but uh, look down at your Bibles, if you would, please. Uh, Consider that these six verses have a woven quality about them in which the two outside verses feel similar. We've just seen that. The two outside verses, 6 and 11, they they feel uh, similar. And so, too, to the two inside verses, uh, verses 8 and 9, they, they feel similar, almost like we're, we're looking at a, a symmetrical quilt. And so you look at verses 8 and 9, you find the very center of the passage, the very center of the quilt. And I think you also find the central theme of the passage. Having told us the existence of God's judgment on the edges of the quilt, verse 6, verse 11, so to speak, Now Paul invites us to dive into the center at verses 8 and 9. And so you see before you in verse 8, Paul says that a person is defined by their allegiance. Do you know how there's a difference between a political figure who is truly a civil servant and a political figure who is only in it for the power and the money? Do you know what I'm talking about? We know that there is that kind of a political figure, one who truly loves selfless service and one who is only in it for the power and the money and the prestige. We know this. Why does that matter? Well, look again at verse 8. That word there that Paul uses, uh, self-seeking. At least that's how the ESV translates that word. The word self-seeking is a word that Aristotle used to describe the kind of politician who is motivated not for service, but for private gain. Not for public good, but for selfishness. Why does that matter? Well, Paul and Aristotle are the first ones to use this word. How amazing is that? Before the first century, Aristotle and Paul uh, used this word translated here as self-seeking, but actually in the Bible, it's sometimes translated as selfish ambition. Philippians 1.17 and 2.3. James uses uh, this word as well. And so verse 8 becomes uh, very clearly about the person whose deep motivation for life is selfishness. 
That's who Paul's addressing in verses 8 and 9. This is the person who does not obey the truth, but obeys unrighteousness. And Paul is going to further encapsulate who he means in verse 9 by adding that, that he refers to every human being who does evil. That's verse 9. Here he's not merely talking about the doing of evil, but the kind of doing that is animated by this inner selfishness, this inner ambition of evil, an allegiance to unrighteousness, not merely performing unrighteous acts. It's an allegiance to unrighteousness that then gives birth to the unrighteous actions. You see what he's doing in verses 8 and 9? He's talking about a person's allegiance. Well, so who, who are they? Right? Well, they are the people Paul, I believe, has already described in Romans uh, chapter 2 and at the end of Romans uh, 1. In verse uh, 9, we uh, see the word translated human being. You see that in verse 9 of our passage. Where have we seen that word before? We've seen it in Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. That's the word for human being. And we've seen it in Romans 2, 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? That word, O man, is the word translated as human being in 2, 9. A man and a woman who have suppressed the truth of the gospel at the end of chapter 1. Those uh, hypocrites uh, of uh, the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, that's who Paul is talking about in verses 8 and 9 of our passage. Uh, these are the kind of people who Paul has uh, expended a lot of ink in describing. It's the mass of humanity born into depravity who have left, their own dev- who left to their own devices cannot help but being the people of Romans 1 and 2. Let me tell you what I mean by that. These are the people who, left to their own devices, cannot help but in varying degrees becoming futile and foolish in their thinking, Romans 1, 21, 22. These are people who cannot help but displace worship of God for worship of idols, Romans 1, 23. They cannot help but precipitously exchange in their life the truth about God for a lie, 125. These are the kind of people who cannot help but exchange natural relations, those intended by their creator, for those that are contrary to his intended purposes, 126. They cannot help but slowly fill themselves and their lives with all manner of unrighteousness. They're uh, listed at the end of Romans chapter 1. These are the kind of people who cannot help but judge others by standards that they themselves cannot keep, Romans 2, 1 and 2, 3. That's who Paul is addressing A Christian may certainly engage in some of the actions that we find at the end of Romans 1, the beginning of Romans 2. But Paul here in verses 8 and 9 is unmistakably clear that humanity is born into a sinful disposition. Humanity is animated by a deep allegiance to self rather than to an allegiance to God. Just before our passage, Paul has described who he means. He says, a person with a heart that is so hard and so impenitent that falling before Jesus in humble repentance and new allegiance to him, sadly, does not seem to them to be a viable option. Isn't that remarkable? I think Paul is addressing those individuals who have given their allegiance to self, who have refused to repent before God and accept his offer of grace in the power of the gospel. That's who they are in verses 8 and 9. Those who refuse to trust Christ for salvation. Now, 
Let me make one more comment before leaving verses 8 and 9. Remember that this point in the sermon is to deal with the question of who this passage is addressing. Who is this addressing? I want to offer something to you very quickly that I'm calling a grammatical comfort. You wonder what use an English degree is. Here it is. I see these grammatical comforts in God's holy word. And so let us thank the Holy Spirit that verses 6 through 11, they're not written in the second person, but they're written in the third person. This doctrine of God's holy judgment is very, very dangerous. But Paul shares it in such a way that he's speaking to us rather generically, almost speaking to us at a distance. Look at verse 5 and you'll see what I mean. Verse 5 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. But then in verse 6, there's a shift to the third person. Paul takes a, a, sta- a step back, as it were, to uh, view a larger Landscape, And so uh, here in verses 6 through 11, Paul has introduced the judging character of God. And here in verses 8 and 9, Paul is extrapolating how that judging character is going to impact those who refuse to repent. It may be you. It may not. But it may be you. And Paul's asking for our generic consent to this is God's character and this is what he will do to that person who refuses to repent. For those who refuse to confess the hardness and impenitence of their heart, this is the only outcome. Notice Paul's insertion in verse 9. Not only does this include every human being, but it includes the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, I think what he's doing here, he does it twice. Uh, he, this is another way of saying that in the history of God's revelation, first to Adam and then to the neighbors of, uh, of Adam, uh, first to Abraham and then to the nations around Abraham. In, in God's structuring of the history of the peoples of the world, God will judge every human being, the Jew first and then the Gentile. This is a revelation of who God really is. He is a God who judges And verses 8 and 9 are addressed to those who refuse to fall on their face before this judging God, seeking his help. Now, it's the very next question. It's this. It's not who is this addressed to, but how is peace before God possible? You see, Paul's telling us that God is very dangerous. And then for two chapters in Romans, Paul has convincingly shown us that there is no safety from God's judgment that can be found in any human activity. There's nothing that we can do to keep ourselves safe. That's what he said, latter half of chapter one, very beginning of chapter two. Nothing you can do will keep you safe before this dangerous God. Where then is safety from this judgment? Where is the cage that will keep me safe from the polar bear? Where is the accounting for God's danger? And so Paul develops the woven character of this passage by moving out from the center, moving out from verses 8 and 9 to verses 7 through 10. Uh, Look at the Bible before you. Verses 7 and 10, they also belong together and they tell us what it looks like to remain safe before a dangerous God. And so in verse 7, Paul uh, could not be clearer. Uh, Here is where we find not the wrath and fury of God, but in verse 7, eternal life. In verse 8, we don't read that God gives wrath and fury. It just says his wrath and fury is there. It exists. 
And here in verse 7, the same is true for eternal life. If wrath and fury exist over there, eternal life exists right here. And then skip forward from 7 to verse 10, and we read more descriptions of what that eternal life is. Paul says that eternal life involves a glory and honor and peace. These nouns appear together only here in the New Testament. And so what we have in verse 7 and verse 10 is a spectacular vision of what communion with God is like. Right on the edges of a dangerous God who judges. Near the hotness and wrath, near his great fury, is the cool sweetness of eternal life with the very maker of the cosmos in which we are enfolded into the fullest expression of glory and honor and peace. The glory and honor and peace that God himself is the author of. Here is more than mere safety from God's judgment. It is rest within God's closeness. You see, this is rather interesting. The cosmic irony is that there's nothing but these two options, a refusal to receive the intimacy which leads to the eternal experience of his wrath or the reception of this intimacy with which the power of the gospel will lead us into eternal rest. And again, Paul assures us that there are no more options in the history of his revealed plan. These two paths are available to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There are no, two, uh, no other options for eternal life. It will be to experience God's wrath and fury, or it will be to experience uh, with God glory, honor, and peace. Now, how's it possible? How can I have that? How can I be near to a God who judges and yet safe from that God who judges? His character doesn't change. Uh, He remains dangerous. And yet, somehow, verses 7 and 10 tell me that I can be close to him even in his danger. And so in verses 7 and 10, Paul describes a certain kind of person, doesn't he? Again, he's being generic by speaking in the third person, but he says in verse 7 that this person is the person who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. You see that in verse 7. It's very difficult to understand. And then in verse 10, he says that this person who has not God's wrath and fury, but instead God's eternal life, is the person who, in verse 10, uh, does good. And so that's a problem, isn't it? And 7 and 10... Uh, The person who by patience and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality and the person in verse 10 who does good. Well, there you have it. Do those things and you have that kind of intimacy that Paul's describing in 7 and 10. And you avoid the wrath and fury of verses 8 and 9. Who's this person? Well, there's a lot of debate here. Who is it? As much as I can gather, uh, during the patristic era, so in uh, the first couple of centuries of uh, the theological life of the church, uh, this, uh, the reference in verses 7 and 10 to this kind of person who uh, is, uh, by patience and well-doing, seeking glory and honor and immortality, this person who's doing good, uh, in uh, that first uh, era of the, the theological life of the church, that person was the person who was truly moral, truly faithful, prior to the birth of Jesus. 
It was a person a lot like uh, Abraham, a person a lot like Noah, saved by faith, but prior to the incarnation of Jesus. And, and that view actually dominated uh, a lot of uh, church theology through to the Reformation. And during the Reformation, it became popular to understand a little bit more clearly, not only are they those kinds of individuals, but more specifically, uh, seven in 10, uh, those people uh, who are uh, by patience and well-doing, seeking glory, honor, and immortality, and those people who are doing good. Well, that's Paul's language for someone who's been regenerated. That's a believer. That's someone who follows Jesus Christ because none of those things, uh, the patience and well-doing, uh, the seeking, the good, none of those things are possible without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Those are things that flow from saving faith. And I think that's where I've landed. I think that's where you ought to land too. The description here is not a description of individuals who can, by their sheer effort, work to salvation. Uh, Romans 1, 16, 17 have made it clear that salvation uh, comes by faith and faith alone. And over and over in Scripture, uh, we know that these are things that a person can do in a way that is pleasing to God only after God has reanimated that heart by his great grace. That's, that's who Paul says experiences eternal life. Now he's going to unfold this more and more in the gospel and that's part of the problem with Romans 1 and 2. And certainly parts of Romans 3. We're seeing a kernel of doctrine that's going to be expanded upon later in Romans. But that's who people, uh, that's the people Paul is addressing, regenerated people who have faith in Jesus Christ, who have repented, who have acknowledged their hardness of heart and who've laid before God for mercy. But I also want us to consider that not only are verses 7 and 10 in a reference to those who are believers, uh, verse 7 and 10 ingeniously Paul is using uh, to begin to impress upon us images of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because without a doubt in verses 7 and 10, no one can be described that way like Jesus can. Jesus himself is the one who is patient in well-doing patient because he's awaiting upon the Father for the Father's will, for the Father's timing. That Jesus is the one who seeks for the glory and honor of the Heavenly Father, doing all things necessary for his glory and honor, uh, even himself in his suffering, uh, being the glory and honor of God who saw fit to uh, incarnate the Son who joins human flesh. Jesus is the one who seeks not only his own immortality, Jesus is the one who seeks our immortality for our sake. He lives and dies. He is the one who truly does good. And so we see two things in verses 7 and 10. We see uh, the picture of someone who has been regenerated, someone who has come to, the, come to God in the gospel in faith, but we also see our own Jesus. He is that one who does good before God. I think Paul is preparing us for Romans chapter 5. When we, be, when we begin to see in this passage, verses 8 and 9, uh, discussing the sin uh, and the corruption that we live in because of Adam, our great parent. That's in verses 8 and 9. And then we back off from that in verse uh, uh, 7 and 10. Now we begin to see the second Adam, as Paul will call him in Romans 5. The second Adam, the better Adam, the Adam that undo undoes the guilt and punishment of the first Adam. 
This is the Adam who satisfies the judgment of God. This is the Adam who is those uh, strong bars between us and God so that his judgment, it doesn't burn us. It doesn't hurt us. He is our protection. I think there's a great application in this passage and I want to share that with you before we pray. We, we so often think that the gospel is so powerful that it dents the judgment of God. That, that the gospel is so powerful that it makes God pull back and relent in his judgment. It, it makes God, uh, as it were, uh, change his shape for us. The gospel is so powerful that it pushes back some of the attributes of God and it pulls forward uh, some of the other attributes of God. And just think about that for a moment. Do we really believe that the gospel actually tames God? That's not what we mean at all. The power of the gospel doesn't tame God. That's the power of the gospel. It doesn't teach us that the gospel, uh, the gospel doesn't teach us that it actually changes God so that uh, he has uh, all of a sudden become uh, kind towards us. It doesn't mold God. God's judgment is God's judgment. It's his character. It's his holiness. It's who he is. It's why it's appropriate for us to come to him with reverence and with awe. But what the gospel does do is it protects us from God's judgment. That character of God we can stare at in the face and it doesn't destroy us. Why? Because Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension it is, is a satisfaction of God's judgment. That's what we mean when we say that the power of God is the satisfaction of Jesus. He satisfies that judgment. The judgment doesn't go away. The judgment doesn't uh, become doused with water. The judgment's the judgment. But Jesus himself, for your benefit, satisfies that judgment drinks that judgment, stands face to face with God and perfectly satisfies him. And we then, as it were, uh, having Jesus as our mantle, uh, we come in under his wings that we might be protected from the judgment of God by the satisfaction of Jesus. Make no mistake about it, in this passage, Paul wants us to see that God is a God who judges. He's introduced that in verse 17 of chapter 1. He's going to continue building upon this. But know this morning that you have protection from that judgment in Jesus Christ. And under that mantle, you will have eternal life and you will have eternal communion with a dangerous God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that you are who you say that you are. That you are always <laughs> concentrated strength and power in total. You are not watered down that we might be able to approach we are protected by the righteousness of Jesus that we might approach. We thank you for the power of the gospel. In his name, amen.